Welcome to Murder Archives, where we re-examine mysterious deaths, reimagine private lives, and give voice to long-forgotten victims of crime. This is Series 1, Fractured Silence, the death of Norma Reese McLeod in September 1929. Norma lived in Turak, a wealthy suburb of Melbourne in the state of Victoria, Australia known for its old money and the homes of the city's elite. Ask a Melbourneian today what they know of Turak and you'll find its reputation hasn't changed much in a century. A Turak contemporary of Norma's, James Paxton, wrote that the 1920s were exciting and life was full of possibilities for everyone after the horrors of the First World War. For 29-year-old Norma, a woman from a sheltered world, Her future was looking brighter, on the verge of a new independence that would echo the sense of freedom of the decade. But it was not to be. Just a month before the catastrophic Wall Street crash that would herald the Great Depression and change Turak and the world forever, Norma's dreams came abruptly to an end. Norma died on her bed, Across her forehead lay a pair of damp underpants, men's underpants. How did she die? The police had their ideas, I have mine. But an inquiry at the time was unable to reach a conclusion. The case remains unsolved after almost 90 years, which means there are many questions still to be answered. I'm Emma Curtin, researcher, writer and true crime enthusiast. This podcast represents the beginning of a broader conversation, a way to bring other perspectives into the investigation. And we need your help. I've no doubt I have my blind spots. Maybe your input can sharpen the focus on areas I've overlooked. As the story unfolds and you start developing your own theories, check out our website, murderarchives.com.au You'll find photos and documents that take you deeper into the unsolved case. You'll also find a link to the National Library's newspaper archives where you can read the original accounts of Norma's death. And if you find something I've missed or want to suggest an alternative theory, email me your thoughts, emma at murderarchives.com.au We've also included links in every episode description. Fresh eyes and new perspectives are invaluable and your insight could bring us closer to solving the mystery of Norma Rees McLeod's death. This is episode one. On the morning of Monday, September 9th, 1929, Norma Rees McLeod was getting ready for a game of golf. But she never made it to the green. By 5pm, the 29-year-old was dead. She was found by her mother lying unconscious on her bed. A post-mortem examination revealed multiple skull fractures caused by violent trauma to the head. Norma lived with her brother and parents in Mandeville Crescent, Turak. Their home was in a fashionable part of one of Melbourne's wealthiest suburbs. Norma featured in the press as a well-known socialite. 
news of her death immediately sparked interest, not only in the suburb, but across the state and across Australia, a nation that was, in terms of federation, as young as Norma herself. The mysterious death of a respectable young woman in her own home sent shivers through affluent Turak and beyond. Speculation about Norma's death was widespread. More than 30 letters from the public to police heightened gossip and the attention on the case. Detectives would pin all their hopes on the contents of one anonymous letter in particular, but we'll get to that. For over two months, the police drip-fed information to journalists. They suggested various theories and teased the public with promises of sensational developments. But at the inquest, eight weeks after Norma's death, Coroner David Grant returned an open verdict. The evidence adduced does not enable me to say how or by what agency the said injuries were inflicted. My fascination with Norma's death began in early 2015, while I was working on another project. I think it was the idea of the underpants laid across her head that intrigued me. Why underpants? It's generally the first thing I mention because it seems so weird. I've been working on this case for more than three years, digging in archives and reading every police record, witness statement, inquest file and newspaper account. I've talked to experts in pathology. Perhaps I should just describe to you very briefly how a post-mortem examination is carried out. Police investigation. What crimes have been happening in that particular area. That's a starting point, an avenue of inquiry. Criminal law and forensic psychology. It does sound a little bit like he might have been a difficult person to live with. I've talked to family members. Naturally, Norma's life still matters to her descendants. All that was told in the family was that Norma was delicate and that she fell and her mother found her. Many of these people you'll meet as the series progresses. We've discovered long-held secrets, connections in high places and people who weren't who they seemed to be. We've come to several conclusions about what might have happened on Norma's last day, but we can't claim them as the definitive truth of Norma's death. The scenarios we've created reflect the findings of detailed investigations. They're designed to open the door for additional discussion. This is where you come in. Despite the passage of time, it's not impossible to think that more clues might still come to light. Every good detective story sets the scene before getting the reader involved, and this is just as important in true crime. For those of you not familiar with the Melbourne suburb where Norma lived and died, Turak's about five kilometres southeast of Melbourne's central business district. It's always been, and still is, known as a place of wealth and privilege. In the 1920s, the activities of Turak residents filled the social pages of the newspapers. And the status given to Turak and its citizens would, I believe, affect the investigation into Norma's death in many ways. The MacLeods lived in a single-storey red-brick villa in the Queen Anne style. On the left-hand side of the house was, and still is, the Turak Bowls Club. A narrow lane separated the club and Norma's house. The house had nine rooms, including two bedrooms. Norma's bedroom was on the left-hand side as you faced the house. Her window overlooked the laneway. You can see the plan of the house taken from the inquest documents on our website or check the episode description for a link. 
The account I'm about to give of Norma and her last day has been pieced together from witness statements, police reports and newspaper articles. As the podcast continues, we'll start to pick some holes in these accounts. But for now, here goes. Norma Rees McLeod was born in Melbourne on the 31st of July 1900. She was 5 foot 3 inches or about 160 centimetres tall, slim and apparently looked younger than her years. She kept her dark brown hair in a short natural bob in the style of the day. This was easy to manage for a woman who apparently liked outdoor activities like golf. You can see a photo of Norma on our website and we'll learn more about her life in coming episodes. Norma was a kindergarten teacher at Caulfield Grammar, a job she'd held for just two terms. In that second week of September 1929, she was enjoying the school holidays. She'd planned a bus trip to Healesville, a small country town 50 kilometres northeast of Melbourne, to leave on Tuesday 10th of September. On the afternoon of the 9th, however, Norma was due to play golf with her cousin, Edith Williams. Edith was four years older than Norma and lived in Caulfield, about four kilometres from the McLeod's house. Norma had lunch at home with her parents that day. Her 61-year-old mother, also named Edith, a housewife, and 63-year-old Norman, a retired major from the Defence Department. Norma's 23-year-old brother, Rhys, who also lived at the family home, was working in the city. The family chatted over lunch about Norma's trip to Healesville and the meal finished at about 1pm. Norma helped her mother clean up the dishes, Mr McLeod washed and changed, ready to go to the city to help his son Rhys. He left sometime between 1.15 and 1.30. Shortly after, Norma rang her cousin Edith to finalise golf details. Edith said she needed to check something and would call Norma back. Meanwhile, Norma's mother got ready to go to the shops in Malvern Road, just around the corner from their house. Mrs McLeod left home around 2pm with Norma ironing a blouse at the back of the house. Norma's cousin rang the McLeod house again at 5 to 2 to confirm arrangements. Nobody answered. Trying another four times, at 5 past 2, she stopped calling. She phoned again from the golf course at five past three. Still, no one answered. After visiting the shops, Norma's mother returned home around 2.30pm. Finding the back door still unlocked, Mrs McLeod went in and called out to Norma. Getting no response, she went to her daughter's bedroom. Here she found Norma lying on her bed, unconscious. The first thing she did was to get an eider down from her own bed to lay across Norma. She then went to find help. Mrs McLeod hurried next door where her neighbour had a nurse companion, Miss Gwilliam. Miss Gwilliam found the young woman lying on her bed with a wet cloth, actually the underpants, covering her right eye and forehead. Norma was fully dressed in her golf gear. Her shoes were beside the bed. Miss Gwilliam wiped Norma's face, removing some yellow mucus from her mouth. She saw no signs of blood. The nurse told Norma's mother to get the doctor. Mrs McLeod ran to the family doctor's surgery on Morven Road, only moments away from her home, where she found Dr Johnson Thwaites attending his patients. Thwaites had been the McLeod's doctor for about 10 years. 
After finishing with his patient, he packed his medical bag and headed to Mandeville Crescent, not long after Edith had left. He examined the unconscious Norma. He found no corneal reflex, meaning Norma didn't blink when her eyes were touched. She had a slight linear mark on her right eyelid and was breathing clearly. Dr Thwaites suggested that Mrs MacLeod try to get hold of her husband and ask him to come home. She said she didn't know where he was. Thwaites then left the house telling Mrs MacLeod to call him if anything troubled her. At 4.15, Thwaites' medical partner, Dr John Davis, received a phone message at the surgery. He wasn't sure who'd made the call, but he thought it was probably Trixie Williams, one of Norma's cousins who was a trained nurse. In response, Dr Davis headed to Mandeville Crescent. He found Norma still unconscious, her breathing now noisy and laboured. Her right eye was now quite black and bulging. Just after Dr Davis's arrival, Mr MacLeod returned from the city. He used his latch key and when Edith heard the door, she ran to him in tears. Oh, Daddy, something dreadful has occurred to our dear Norma. When I came home this afternoon, I found her on the bed, unconscious. Entering his daughter's bedroom, Mr MacLeod saw Dr Davis, his niece Trixie Williams and family friend Dr James Perrins Major. While the doctors were preparing to do a spinal tap, for what reason I'm not sure, Norma died. It was about 5pm. Strangely, the doctors were unwilling to sign a death certificate. Instead, Dr Davis rang Dr Thwaites and asked him to call the police. At 5.30pm, Constable Thomas MacDonald of the Turak Police Station took the call from Dr Thwaites. Arriving at Mandeville Crescent, Constable MacDonald saw Norma's body and made a brief examination of the house. I saw the deceased lying face upwards on a bed in her bedroom. I examined the body and found that the deceased, who was fully dressed, had received an injury to the right eye, which was very badly discoloured. I examined the rooms and could find no trace of a struggle having occurred or the house disturbed in any way. Around 6pm, Constable MacDonald went with Norma's body to the morgue. He then contacted senior detective Arthur Lonsdale Lee, who would lead the case. At 8pm that evening, Lee and Detective Frank Simpson went to the MacLeod house. They only spoke with Norman MacLeod, as Mrs MacLeod was far too upset to talk. Believing little more could be done at that point, the officers decided to return the following day. Meanwhile, at 8.45pm, Dr Jock Williams was at the morgue identifying the body of Norma MacLeod, his cousin. His knowledge of the family, plus his medical qualifications, made Jock a central figure in this Turak drama, as an advocate for Norma and her family. To the police, he became a thorn in their side. Speculation began. Norma's brother Rhys told journalists he thought his sister had fallen and struck her head while having a bath. It was a pretty weak theory as Norma was fully dressed when found. Constable MacDonald had also checked the bathroom and found the floor was dry, dismissing the idea she'd slipped on wet lino. Mr and Mrs MacLeod told police Norma was neither clumsy nor prone to fainting fits. There were no stairs in the house and nothing that would indicate a fall. Once the story hit the papers, people began asking questions and interest grew. 
Accident or foul play, read the headline in the Argus. Mystery surrounds the death of Miss Norma Rees McLeod, was the lead in the Sydney Morning Herald. Some readers believed, as Norma had been ironing, maybe the iron had fallen on her head from a shelf. Or, as she was off to play golf, maybe she'd accidentally hit her head during a practice swing. Neither theory seemed very plausible. An examination of Norma's injuries revealed more. After identifying Norma's body, Cousin Jock certainly believed her death was no accident. I expressed my opinion that it was not an accident that had caused her death. I saw the skull cap of the deceased. I realised the full extent of the injuries that caused Miss McLeod's death. The post-mortem exam would prove Jock's suspicions correct. On the 10th of September 1929, having examined Norma's body, government pathologist Dr Crawford Mollison concluded... Death was due to injuries to the head, which could not have been due to any ordinary fall, and in my opinion were caused by a violent blow from a weapon with a broad, flat surface. Mollison told detectives Lee and Simpson of his findings. Accident had now been ruled out. Norma had a seven-inch crack in the back of her skull caused by a violent blow. While this hadn't broken the skin, explaining the lack of blood, it had caused permanent damage. There were no indications of sexual assault. To confirm Mollison's findings and add a modern perspective, we asked consultant forensic pathologist Byron Collins for his opinion. Byron is one of Victoria's most experienced forensic pathologists, with 40 years of expertise in the field. He's conducted well over 10,000 autopsies for all sorts of deaths. The PM report is reasonably detailed, although it lacks some definitive descriptions, particularly of some of the injuries. All the organs appeared normal. There was some frothy mucus in the trachea and major airways. This is an indication of pulmonary edema, fluid within the lungs. And the uh, most important findings were, firstly, on external examination, there was a well-developed right-sided periorbital hematoma, or black eye. As I understand it, there were no other signs of trauma described by Dr Mollison when he examined the body externally initially, although he does make the fairly strange comment, no other external marks of violence of any import. Now, that's not the sort of phrase that a pathologist would normally use because import might be very different or might have very different meaning depending on the pathologist who's doing the autopsy. And so normally that sort of phrase wouldn't be used because very simply um, a small bruise that doesn't appear to be particularly significant at an autopsy might have a great significance once the uh, complete investigation has been finished. The other major findings were within the scalp and head, and these were identified during the internal examination of the body. There was extensive bruising on the inside of the scalp in its entirety, as I understand it, and uh, there was also bruising on the surface of the skull bones themselves. And he's given a very simple cause of death, which covers all the findings. Death was due to injuries to the head, and I see no reason to doubt this finding. 
I think one could suitably exclude an accidental or even a, an intentional fall by her because the point of contact seems to me, having examined the autopsy report um, or the top of the head in the vertex region, and that's an unlikely area to strike if somebody were to fall over. It's usually the side of the head that uh, sustains the, the damage. So what you're saying is that the instrument would have come down on top of her head as opposed to from the side or from the back? Yes, I think so. Um, if she was struck from the on the side of the head, say above the ear, then this fracture site, as I understand it from the description, is not just above the ear. It runs really from front to back in the skull roughly adjacent to the midline, but on the right-hand side. If you were to draw a line from the mid-region of your right eyebrow and go up the back over the top of your head and towards the, the point of the back of your skull, the bump of knowledge, that would be a rough description of the major fracture. But then at the top of the fracture, right at the vertex of the scalp, there's some small fracturing there as well, which indicates to me that that's the likely point of contact and the fracture um, line anywhere where a point of contact is in the skull can run in either or any direction. What you're saying is you you can't necessarily tell whether it came from the front or the back just on the top. I think it's just on the top that's right. Superintendent Walsh the officer in charge of the police criminal investigation branch at the time knew the McLeod family regularly playing bowls with Mr McLeod. He sent a personal message of sympathy to the family, saying that no effort would be spared in clearing up the mystery of Norma's death. Aside from the horrific injury and the weirdness of the underpants, a few other things bothered me about Norma's last day. First of all, the more I talked about the day's events, the more it struck me that at some point during the afternoon of the 9th, Norma had been seen by three doctors and two nurses, but nobody called an ambulance or took her to hospital. This seems incredible to me, even looking back 90 years. Victoria's ambulance service was certainly well established by then. The year before Norma's death, more than 13,000 people had been taken to one of the state's hospitals by ambulance. Melbourne's Alfred Hospital was only a 10 or 15 minute drive from the McLeod house and family friend Dr Major had been a resident there for years. So why was an ambulance not called? It's an extremely odd decision or omission for five medical professionals. I can understand that Norma's injuries may not have seemed life-threatening at first. The black eye was visible but no cuts to the skin or external bleeding were apparent. Did the doctors really believe Norma was in no danger? They must have realised she hadn't simply fainted. Surely her lack of corneal reflex must have indicated a brain injury. And she had been unconscious for more than two hours. Even Dr Davis admitted his concerns at the inquest. After a severe blow causing a fracture, the discoloration increases as the hours go on. I attended there about quarter past four. By that time there was an extensive discoloration of the eye. It was completely blackened and bulging forward with the blood behind. Surely then they recognised the seriousness of her condition, serious enough for hospital treatment. And it seemed odd that the doctors were suspicious enough to refuse to sign a death certificate. But if they'd all thought she might live, 
Was there a reason why they wanted matters kept in-house? This question kept coming back to me, and it's something we'll explore in later episodes. Of course, whether the hospital could have revived Norma or not, we'll never know. As it was, she remained at home, the blood pressing on her brain, and no amount of bedside care could save her. Norma was dead, but who had killed her and why? The police would initially focus on a burglary gone wrong. Then their attention would turn to an anonymous letter written by a potential eyewitness who hinted at family dramas and pointed the finger at a particular suspect. Was there something in Norma's private life that led to her death? As the story develops, we'll learn more about Norma, her hopes, her plans, her relationships, and the secret that remained hidden for almost 20 years after her death, but not hidden to all. We'll hear from experts past and present about Norma's injuries. One theory hinging on whether she could have walked after the blow to her head. In the next episode, we'll learn more about the detectives' initial lines of inquiry and their growing suspicions that this was not the work of a stranger. In the meantime, here's some food for thought. What comes to mind when you think about the underpants lying across Norma's head? And why do you think an ambulance wasn't called? Am I making too much of this? If you want to share your thoughts, contact me by email anytime. Emma at murderarchives.com.au Thank you.